Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. What follows is the final speaker to appear at the Casebook Classic Crime Symposium at the Chamberlain Hotel in London on Saturday, December 5th, 2015. This event was organized by Frog Moody and Time Zone Publishing's Casebook Classic Crime in conjunction with the Whitechapel Society. All four talks have now been presented in their entirety and uncut, with the accompanying slide presentations available for download on the individual presentations podcast page at casebook.org. Get ready for the final speaker at this event, Adam Wood with Donald Swanson in the Seaside Home. Um, thank you very much. Um, I must admit it's been a bit nervous because Neil has done my slides, so we'll uh, see how we got on with that. Um, most people are aware that Chief Inspector Donald Swanson was the officer in overall charge of the investigation to the Whitechapel murders. And in retirement, he wrote the so-called Swanson Marginalia, the prime suspect as Kosminski. I'll be looking at the Marginalia later, but first I want to talk a little about Swanson's background and career. Unlike this little chap, not everyone is born a policeman, and those who have spoken with me about the book I'm writing on Swanson will know that one of my pet hates is when you read a biography and within the first paragraph they've been born educated to join the Met. By the end of the first page they've often already been promoted to inspector. So let's look at Swanson's life before 1888. Donald Sutherland Swanson was the youngest of seven surviving children born to John Swanson and Mary Thompson who married on Christmas Day 1828. John was a brewer in Ducilla, who had worked in various locations around the northern Scottish county of Cape Ness, and by the 1840s he was running a distillery at the remote farmlands of Geats, where Donald was born in this farmhouse on the 12th of August 1848. The distillery itself stood at the bottom of the hill to the village of this photo, and today the ruins form part of a popular heritage trail. John would work the Geese distillery for three more years before the family moved seven miles north to the coastal town of Thurzo. <coughs> Thurzo is the most northerly town in the British mainland, closer to Norway than it is to London. In Victorian times, there were as many traders from Scandinavia as from the mainland, bringing pine and other wood to Thurzo. The town's main industries were fishing in the bay and the production of Caithness flagstones, which were sent out around the world. Today, there are still pavements made from Caithness stone across Europe and America. The Swanson family settled into his house on Delaney Street, one road back from the coastline. By the age of 10, Donald was already showing signs of being highly intelligent. So although at that time there was no compulsory education in Scotland, his parents paid for him to be educated at the local parish school by teacher Robert Mickle. At a Caithness school's examination of children under the age of 12, Donald achieved first place in three subjects, beating more than a dozen competitors in each category. In 1863, he began attending the Billing Institution, an important school shown here on the far left. This photograph was taken at the time Swanson was attending. He again excelled in the annual examinations, and at the age of 16 was offered a position as a pupil teacher, whereby he would teach the infants, while being tutored himself by the head teacher for an hour in the morning and another at the end of each day. This photograph shows Swanson around this time standing behind his parents dressed in his teacher's gown. Donald continued in the pupil teacher position at the Miller Institution for around a year before realising the job held few prospects. 
He certainly didn't want to complete the five years of training which a pupil teacher was required to undertake. We therefore began to think of a life outside Thursday. Interestingly, Donnie's eldest brother, John Swanson, had left Thurso some years earlier and had joined the City of London Police and then the Edinburgh Police Force. In 1867, when Donald was thinking of a new career, John was about to be appointed superintendent of the Abilene Police. So it would be logical for the younger brother to join that force. Instead, he made plans to move to London. As there were no trains in Thurso at that time, he had to board the stagecoach, which departed daily from outside the town's royal hotel. The journey comprised a 17-hour stagecoach ride to Inverness, 176 miles away, where a train could be caught to London, arriving at King's Cross the following day. It's obviously quite a journey, and not one to be undertaken with no plans for a life in London. So why did Donald Swanson do so? Well, his sisters Margaret and Mary had married two English firemen and raised families in London. In September 1867, Margaret's husband, Peter Alexander, died unable to pass a kidney stone. And I suspect Donald went to London to support his sister and her young family as they prepared to return to Thursday. Swanson went to live with his other sister, Mary, and had already been found a job working for a John Nicholl, probably related to his former teacher, Robert Nicholl. He spent around six months working as a city clerk, first in Savage Gardens, and then at Catherine Court, shown here. The steps on the left mark the entrance to Swanson's office. In March 1868, John Nicholl told Swanson he intended to retire a few weeks later, so the young clerk scoured the newspapers for situations vacant. One advertisement he saw was for constables and the Metropolitan Police. Swanson's letter of application, shown here, is very modest and typical of the character he would display in future years. He writes, Should you kindly grant me an interview, I shall be happy to furnish you with most unexceptional references as to character, education, and ability. I am 19 years of age and do not so much desire a large salary as a good opening and a moderate one. His letter resulted in an invitation to candidate study, thanks Neil, which he did on the 31st of March 1868. He was recorded as being five foot eight and a half inches tall, with hazel eyes, dark brown hair, and a dark complexion. With Swanson's intellect and education, he sailed through the exam and shortly thereafter became a constable in the Metropolitan Police Force. Like all new candidates, he had to complete three weeks drill training. At the end of this, he received his uniform, swore the oath, and was given warrant number 50282. He was assigned to A Division, Westminster, and sent to King Street Station as PC 311. King Street Station was the headquarters of A Division and ran parallel with Downing Street. Like most single young constables, Swanson probably lived in a section house connected to the station. If he was under any illusions as to how dangerous a life of a policeman could be, he had a quick reminder when Inspector Daniel Bradstock was stabbed to death by a prisoner at King Street Station less than two weeks after Swanson had been placed there. The early months of Swanson's new career, as he learned the ropes, were thankfully not as traumatic, but it wasn't plain sailing. Before he'd even finished the promotional period, he'd been fined for not only being late for roll call, but when he did turn up 25 minutes later, he was out of uniform. Short time later, he was again late for roll call, and as Neil said, this time he climbed over the section house railings in an attempt to avoid being detected. The ruse failed, and he was fined two shillings and again cautioned. He gradually progressed and was promoted through the constable grades in 1871 at the age of 23 to police sergeant. This photograph was taken around that time. 
He was transferred to West Ham in K Division, where once again he was in trouble, this time for being seen with two fellow officers standing outside the Lion Public House at midday with his armour off, despite being on duty. He was fined five shillings and severely reprimanded. Not all these visits to our local pubs ended badly. For in 1874, Swanson met 20-year-old Julia Neville, the landlord's daughter at the British Lion. Swanson might have simply drunk in the pub, or it may have been the venue for local inquests, which he attended in an official capacity. Either way, the couple began courting. Donald and Julia courted for four years before marrying at the Paris Church in West Ham in May 1878. They set up home in Kennington, South London, and would go on to have five children, Ada, Douglas, Donald, Julia, Alice and James. In September 1876, Swanson successfully passed his entrance examination into the detective department, which was soon to be rocked by the so-called trial of the detectives, where senior members of Scotland Yard were exposed as corrupt. The department was completely reorganised by Howard Vincent, becoming the CID. Swanson was one of the new breed of detectives responsible for re-establishing the reputation of Scotland Yard. He was soon promoted Detective Inspector. One of his early cases as a detective was to trace jewellery worth a quarter of a million pounds stolen from the Countess of Bechtelite. Swanson visited pawnbrokers in the Mayfair area, obtaining descriptions of a man who had recently been trying to dispose of high-quality items. The man in question was soon located. He was a former butler who had recently been dismissed. When Swanson apprehended him, he had a single pearl in his pocket, which he was unable to account for. Escorting him to his lodgings, the detective discovered four diamond rings, a diamond necklace, a gold brooch, and a ruby ring, along with several pawn tickets. Eventually, Swanson recovered all the jewellery, apart from one bracer, worth £10. He received a substantial reward from the Earl at that time, the equivalent of £10,000, more than a year's wage for the detective inspector. He also received this chance pistol from the great grateful countess with his name engraved upon it. Yes, this photo was taken in a pub, sometimes brandishing a firearm is the only way to get the meat to buy a pint. <laughs> the following year, Swanson was placed in charge of the search for an estate murderer when the body of Frederick Isaac Gold was found on railway tracks in the Balkan Tunnel near Brighton. It was only the second case of a railway murder in the UK the killing of Thomas Briggs by Franz Muller 17 years earlier. Incidentally, Mr. Gold's body was examined by Dr. Thomas Bond, sent by Scotland Yard, and the inquest into his death was conducted by Edwin Baxter. An important part of the case was that it was the first time a likeness of a wanted man appeared in a national newspaper. A drawing of the suspect, Percival Floyd Mapleton, was produced by someone who knew him, and this was turned into a wanted poster which was printed in the Daily Telegraph. Police officers who saw Lefroy after his capture commented he did not have the imbecilic look presented in the circulated project uh, portrait. And several said they would probably pass him in the street rather than recognise him as the man they were looking for. Lefroy was eventually traced to Smith Street, Stepney, and arrested by Swanson and Inspector Frederick Jarvis. He was taken to Cutfield Magistrates Court, and here's Swanson on the way, keeping an eye on his prisoner. A newspaper report of the hearing gave an insight into Swanson's bearing. Inspector Swanson is one of the keenest, and, if the term can be used, most detective-like Scotchmen it be possible to find. The foyer may have received him, as he states in 32 Smith Street, Stepney, with coolness, but the appearance of such an officer of police was certainly not calculated to inspire a suspected man with confidence. There are many people in the world whom a person hiding from general observation 
would prefer to see than Inspector Swanson. The business-like way in which he proceeded with his evidence suggested what his manner was like when he was in the room. He had actually taken down the prisoner's words in a memorandum book at the very moment when Lefroy was in his grasp. I wonder that Lefroy solicitor Mr Dutton refrained from cross-examining him. Inspector Jarvis, who had accompanied Mr Swanson to the house, was a very fit companion indeed. As they stood side by side, while the depositions of Mr Swanson were being read over, and Mr Jarvis was waiting to give his evidence, they certainly appeared patterns of what too much such names should be. The chances of escape remaining when anyone was in their hands would be very slight. Before he was tried at Maidstone and found guilty and executed at Lewes Jail in November 1881, Swanson recorded the result in his address book shown here. He was awarded £5 by the Commissioner and the newspapers reported he'd become known as Lucky Swanson by his fellow officers on account of the number of financial rewards he'd recently won. In 1882, when this photograph was taken, Swanson's standing had increased significantly both within the CID and with the public. He was chosen to travel to Aberdeen to investigate the robbery for ransom of the body of the 25th Earl of Crawford. The local newspaper re reported Swanson's arrival in Aberdeen. <coughs> Inspector Swanson was looked upon with considerable interest in not some all as the capture of Lefroy, and interest was probably heightened by the circumstances that he's a native of the North and has relatives in Aberdeen. Swanson would in fact initially stay with Brother John, recently retired after 11 years as superintendent of the Aberdeen Police. And it's probable that the brothers discussed the death of the Earl's body, which was eventually recovered safely. Also in 1882, Swanson had accompanied Chief Superintendent Frederick Williamson to Dublin to arrest Michael Daggett in relation to feeding activity, and later to arrest the suspect in Phoenix Park murders. In fact, during the 1880s, Swanson increasingly worked alongside the great Superintendent Williamson. A newspaper later commented that Mr. Williamson, recognising Mr. Swanson's originality and method quite unusual, gave him every opportunity in exercising, exercising his own special tone. Examples of this in major cases include the Fenian bombing campaign of 1882-25. While hundreds of police officers were involved in investigating individual incidents, Swanson worked with Williamson, creating evidence on an outside special branch. This image shows the Westminster bomb of March 1883. Huge chunks of concrete were found onto the roof of King Street Police Station, shown on the left, where Swanson was based at the time. I can't make up my mind whether this officer is holding his helmet on or cupping his ears if he's not heard a small bang. <laughs> In November 1887, Swanson worked with Williamson, tracing the high-profile demonstrators at Trafalgar Square riots, known as Bloody Sunday, with the result that dozens of MPs and socialist leaders were arrested. So when the Whitechapel murders began and Commissioner Charles Warren was looking for one officer to hit the inquiry, I think it's very likely he asked Williamson who was the best man for the job, with the result that on 15th September, Swanson was placed in charge of the case. This is the famous memo from Sir Charles in which he appoints Swanson to act as his eyes and ears in the case. I'm not going to discuss the river here, as I'll look at the margin idea shortly. However, there is a photograph taken in November 1888, which gives an idea of what's going on in Swanson's mind at the time. I had my doubts about showing it, but decided it was appropriate. This is three-year-old Douglas Sutherland Swanson, youngest son of Donald and Julia. According to the handwritten caption on the back, this photo was taken four days after the murder of Mary Kelly. It's worth remembering that, as with many officers involved in the investigation, Swanson had a young family at home. 
and in fact, for the duration of the Ripper murders of 1888, Julia was pregnant with twins. She was no doubt worried about the case and the pressure on her husband to catch a killer. This is Alice Julia Swanson, elder of the twins. They were born prematurely on the 2nd of January, 1889, perhaps caused by the worry Julia was feeling. Sadly, Alice's twin, William, survived for just 40 days before passing away due to marasmus, or severe malnutrition. It could be said he was an indirect victim of Jack the Ripper. Donald Swanson would go on to investigate many more high-profile cases, including a crackdown on homosexual blackmail and the important arrest of Dr. Leander Jameson over an attempt at troop and uprising in South Africa. In 1896, Swanson was appointed superintendent of the CID, effectively the top detective at Scotland Yard. He retired in 1903 with an exemplary record. He's climbing over the railings at King Street Station, seemingly forgotten. He passed away on Tuesday, the 25th of November, 1924, from heart disease, and was buried in his plot at Kingston Cemetery. The funeral was attended by both members of the CID and the local police force. All these papers and documents passed to Julia, who herself died 11 years later, in 1935. With her sons by this time working overseas, Donald Swanson's possessions were retained by daughters Ada and Alice. The sisters remained unmarried and moved to Orchard Cottage, in a small village near Dunstable, where they lived together until 1976, when Ada died aged 93. Alice, died. Alice passed away four years later, age 91. Her executor with nephew, was nephew James Swanson, who collected everything from Orchard Cottage and took it to his home in Peaslake, Surrey. Jim noticed that several crime books which had belonged to his grandfather had handwritten notes in them, some correcting the author and others adding information. It was this book, the Autobiography of Assistant Commissioner Sir Robert Anderson, which was of most interest as it revealed information on the fate and identity of Jack the Ripper. Donald Swanson had made extensive notes on the pages where Anderson had discussed his suspect, the Polish Jew. Judging by the use of colour pencils, he visited the page on more than one occasion, each time giving a little more information. These notes had become known as the Swanson Marginalia. Where Anderson had written, the only person who ever had a good view of the murderer unhesitatingly identified the suspect the instant he was confronted by him, but he refused to give evidence against him. Swanson added, because the suspect was also a Jew, and also because his evidence would convict the suspect, witness would be the means of murderer being hanged, and he did not wish to be left on his mind. Alongside this, he wrote, and after this identification, which suspect knew, no other murder of this kind took place in London. On the book's end paper, Swanson had more room, more space to elaborate. Continuing from page 138, after the suspect had been identified at the seaside home, where he'd been sent by us with difficulty in order to subject him to identification, and he knew he was identified. When suspect returned to his brother's house in Whitechapel, he was watched by police, CTCID, by day and night. In a very short time, the suspect, with his hands tied on his back, he was sent to Stepney Workhouse, and into Colley Hatch and died shortly afterwards, because Minsky was the suspect. This was a strong statement from the officer who had been in overall charge of the case, so understandably Jim Swanson felt the discovery was important, given the level of interest which had existed in the Ripper case, and he contacted the newspapers. In April 18, 1981, he was visited by Charles Sandell, the veteran crime reporter from the News of the World, who agreed to buy the story. In the event, the newspaper didn't publish it, 
probably because little information can be found at that time on Kosminski. Also happening at that time were major stories such as the trial of the Yorkshire River and the forthcoming wedding of Prince Charles of Diana Spencer. So a story about an unknown Polish Jew was probably not high profile enough for the news of the world circulation requirements. The story was eventually published in October 1987 by the Tony Democrat, which had approached, been approached by Jim after they ran a series of articles on the river and then went up to the centenary. The name of Kuzminski received a mixed reaction, especially in the absence of evidence to corroborate Swanson's claims. Martin Fido was able to incorporate the marginalia into his book, The Crimes, Deception and Death of Jack the Ripper, and located a Polish Jew in the asylum records with the appropriate surname, Aaron Kuzminski. Frustratingly, subsequent research has failed to explain why some of the known facts of Aaron Kuzminski are at odds to what Swanson wrote. He lived for many years after his incarceration at Coley Hatch, despite Swanson writing that the suspect died shortly afterwards, for example. We don't have time to examine the marginalia in full today, so I'd like to focus on the location of the suicide home identification. To recap, Swanson wrote, the suspect had been identified at a suicide home, where he'd been sent by us with difficulty in order to subject him to identification, and he knew he was identified. So where was the seaside home? The term seaside home is generally assumed to be a reference to the Metropolitan Police Convalescent Home at Clarendon Villas in Hope. But this immediately presents a problem, as the home didn't open until March 1890, and Anderson wrote the last written murder was that of Mary Kelly. Did the identification take place two years after a murder? Another issue is the journey from London to Hove. It wasn't the easiest place to get to, perhaps this is what Swanson meant by with difficulty. Further along the south coast is the Metropolitan Convalescent Institution at Bexford-on-Sea, which opened in 1881. However, this was a general convalescent home for any poor person over the age of 14, not a venue specifically offering beds for police officers in need. Would Swanson have arranged for a dangerous suspect to be escorted by police officers to a venue where they would have stood out? Again, access would have been difficult. Surely Swanson and his colleagues would have sent the suspect somewhere easier to get to. A further 60 miles along the coast is St Margaret's at Cliff, a small picturesque village down in Kent where those swimming the English Channel start and was home to Ian Fleming for six years in the 1950s. Nearby that, several nearby landmarks appear in the James Bond novels. And as you might guess from the White Cliffs, it comes under the district of Dover, five miles away. In 1888, the mayor of Dover was Sir William Crundall. In fact, Sir William had been elected mayor in 1886 and would be re-elected 12 times in the next 14 years. Sir William was a personal friend of Sir Robert Anderson, who often visited Dover, both with his family and at official functions. St Margaret's itself was a village in three parts. The first being at the foot of the cliffs, the middle village on Bay Hill, and the largest part being further inland. This postcard shows the village from Bay Hill, and the building we're interested in is on the right with a flagpole in front. It was built as a private residence and in 1840 named Marine House, when it opened as a boarding school for young ladies, accommodating around 30 pupils. By 1881, popularity of school had diminished, the numbers more than half, and it closed the following year. The availability of the building was brought to the attention of a philanthropic member of Parliament in London. Samuel Morley was a wealthy William manufacturer who was living in for Nottingham and then Bristol for 20 years. He was a great philanthropist, funded many ventures including Morley College and adult education, 
College to operate today on London South End. In 1881, he founded the London Hospital Saturday Fund, whose offices were at Five Mitre Court. The aim of the fund was to raise money for hospitals and other institutions providing care for the sick. Since the fund's inception, Morley had been looking for a suitable venue to establish a seaside convalescent home. In 1883, Marine House in St. Margaret's at Cliff was renamed Morley House and opened as a convalescent home for working men. Superintendent of the home was Charles Bray, a stonemason who added these ornate fittings to the building's exterior. The Morley House committee operated very simple rules. London-based companies paid an annual subscription and any employee who was taken ill could visit as an inmate or a day visitor. The majority came from businesses based in the city of London. It was popular with workers from many different industries, designed versus postmen, printers, and the London Fire Brigade. The City of London Police also paid a subscription, and over the years, hundreds of officers of that force enjoyed a visit to the home when recuperation was required. In fact, Morley House was so popular with the City of London Police that they paid for the building of an extension for their own private use, with a new capstan wing opening in 1895. In 1888, the home had 36 beds for those men who needed an extended rest, with the average patient staying for one week. Each inmate patient paid five shillings towards his meals and bed on top of the annual subscription, ensure the home ran on budget. Although the home had limited beds, it could accommodate 150 men in the dining hall, as stated, many of these attending as day visitors. The headquarters of the Morley House Committee was at Holborn Viaduct, and it was here that men wishing to stay at the home were interviewed by the committee on a Friday evening. Once subscription payments and other records had been checked, the applicant had to be medically examined to confirm he was in need of recuperation. The doctor who conducted these medical examinations was Frederick Gordon Brown, Divisional Surgeon for the City of London Police, who, as we all know, prepared the detailed post-mortem report on the victim Catherine Adams. <coughs> Gordon Brown had been on the committee of Morley House since his inception in 1883. And in addition to performing applicant examinations at the home of the offices, also acted as medical officer to inmates already at the home. Visiting St Margaret's on many occasions with his practice partner, Stephen Appleford. Men who were successful in their applications were told to travel down on a Monday morning and the journey could scarcely be simpler. Minutes from the home of Viaduct offices was Snowville Railway Station, directly opposite the City of London Police Station of the same name. From here, the London Chatham and Dover Railway offered a service which went directly down to Dover. Passengers from Morley House would alight at Martin Hill Station, less than two miles from St Margaret's. In 1888, there was an omnibus which took passengers from Martin Hill Station to the village, uh, but they often would walk a short distance. In fact, when the Morley House Committee and Benefactors visited in June 1988, they were led along this road by a marching band you can see St Margaret's Church at the end of the road in this photo, indicating just how close it was to Martin Mill Station. This is Morley House in 1888. <coughs> Between January and October that year, more than 500 men stayed at the home, some for a day or two, and others for a week or more. I think a few extra people wandering around, such as two or three policemen being a suspect to be identified, would not have seen that out of place. As a convalescent home for working men, the witness could have been recuperating at Morley House, or more likely have been taken there on the pretext of viewing it as well as a subscription. I suspect the logistics of getting the two men at home at the same time was a difficulty which Boston described. 
where the identification have actually taken place. If we accept this most likely a confrontation rather than a formal identity parade, the suspect could have been brought into the witness's proximity almost anywhere within the home. In addition to the dining room and bedrooms already seen, there was a large recreation room, a small reading room, or it could have even taken place within the grounds. That could be because Minsky and his police escort sitting there for all. <laughs> I think at this point I should underline I'm not necessarily saying that Dr. Gordon Brown was involved in plans of identification, nor am I suggesting Sir William Crumble was told anything about it by Sir Robert Anderson. But bearing in mind that as Swanson says the witness was a Jew, it was almost certainly one of the three men who saw Kathleen Doze with a man on the corner of Church Passage. Her subsequent murder was a City of London Police investigation. Swanson wrote that following the identification, the suspect was watched day and night by the city CID. Here we have a seaside home whose medical officer was a divisional surgeon of the City of London Police. Same force paid for a subscription to main beds at the home. Getting to Morley House was extremely easy with a direct train running from opposite the City of London Police's Snowville Station. And as Neil also pointed out to me, it was part of Dr Gordon Brown's job to monitor the health of City of London Police suspects. Could he have been involved after all? I have to wait for the book. The <laughs> <laughs> story of Morley House doesn't end in 1888. In 1898, a man staying at the home spent the best part of an afternoon in a local pub before going to St Margaret's Parish Church, which you can see in the background of this photo, and stealing 10 shillings from the connection box. He said he didn't remember much, but in his defence, at least he kind of broken into the church. Two years later, an inmate took a cup of tea up to the superintendent of the home who was in his room. The inmate found him lying in a pool of blood on the floor with a cut throat, a broken glass under the body. Although he'd been unwell for some time, the superintendent's death was never explained. And in 1902, a man staying at the home was found unconscious on the beach, having fallen from cliff edge 100 feet above. He was alive but had several broken bones and had to have a leg amputated. Morley House closed in 1908 and lay empty until the outbreak of the First World War, and the bedrooms were used by the army for sick and wounded soldiers. In 1920, the National Deposit Friendly Society bought the home and renamed it Portal House, operating it as a convalescent home similar to Morley House. It was closed at the beginning of World War II and came under government control. In 1959, Portal House was reopened as a Kent County Council home for 66 elderly people. And when this closed in 1975, thought was given to it becoming a hostel for the homeless, but this was rejected on the grounds of cost. It became a school for children with special needs in 1977, a function that continues to fulfil to this day. As you can see, it's looking a bit old and tired now, but still very atmospheric. Finally, this is Martin Mill Station. Trains from London stop on the station side, but passengers returning to the capital have to walk through a tunnel to the opposite platform. If Morley House was the scene for the seaside home identification, it's very easy to imagine Kosminski being taken through this tunnel under police escort and returned to his brother's house in Whitechapel. But that, as they say, is another story. Thank you very much. And that was RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, with a special four-part presentation of the December 5th, 2015 Casebook Classic Crime Symposium. I wish to give a big thank you to Frog Moody, 
Jackie Murphy, Alan Hunt, Ian Wilson, all of the speakers at the event, and the entire committee of the Whitechapel Society for making these broadcasts possible. We are a podcast sponsored by the website casebook.org, where the shows, now numbering about 70, are available to either stream or download. And we are also in the iTunes Music Store's podcast section, where you may subscribe to the podcast and have all the new episodes automatically downloaded. This is the final podcast of Rivercast for the year 2015, tomorrow being New Year's Eve. And on behalf of all of us at Rivercast, we'd like to thank you again for listening to us over these going on eight years. We hope you have a safe and happy new year and look for us to continue to provide you with podcasts related to Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders coming soon in 2016. So stay tuned.